Welcome to How to Be a Money Magpie, the podcast from moneymagpie.com, sponsored by the pension provider PensionBee. I'm Jasmine Bertles, the founder of Money Magpie, and this podcast series looks at all sorts of aspects of money, from freebies to investing, and from holiday tips to ways to set up a business on the side. Today, though, we are looking at pensions. In fact, this is part of a series of six podcasts that we're doing on various aspects of pensions, what they are, should you have one, and much more. Today, we're looking at private pensions and their stepsister, LISAs, lifetime ISAs, to see what the pros and cons of both are, which is better, and whether you should have one of each. And I'm really thrilled to have the expert herself with me, Claire Barrett, personal finance editor at the Financial Times, together with the financial advisor, David Braithwaite, who has a lot to say about both pensions and licenses. Good to see you both. Thank you for having Thank us. You. Thank you. And it turns out that you, Claire, you have a LISA, which is good going. When did you get it and how much have you got in it now, if you don't mind me asking? Well, when they announced that the Lifetime ISA was going to be created, um, I forget which budget it was, I was 39 at the time. And obviously this is a product that you can only open if you're under 40. And I sat in the FT newsroom and smiled from ear to ear as I worked out that because my birthday is um, near the beginning of April, I qualified to open an account by the space of six days. Um, but I think I'm probably one of the oldest people in in Britain to have a lifetime ISA. Um, I have um, luckily enough been able to afford to have put the full £4,000 um, subscription into it every year, apart from one year when I chose not to, just because I wanted a bit more flexibility in case my husband lost his job during the pandemic. Fortunately, I was worrying over nothing, but that is the biggest problem with these things. We're gonna talk about it later. You know, they're not flexible. I can only get that money out again when I'm 60, which of course is decades and decades away. Well, you already know I'm in my early 40s. So, but you know, it's it's done well. It's been a useful discipline. £333 a month is what you'll have to put in it every month if you want to fill up the full £4,000 allowance. And I've been able to do that. And we can talk a bit more later about what you could do if you had one. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. And, and of course, you know, as, as you say, you can only put up to 4K a year into a LISA, but that does mean that there's a, a 16,000 extra that you can put into some other sort of ISAs, I'm guessing, David. Is, is that right? Absolutely, yes. So the £4,000 that you pay into a lifetime ISA, ISA counts towards the overall annual limit of 20. So if you are paying into a lifetime ISA at four, as Claire is, you've got the 16,000 that you could go off and do another ISA with, so stocks and shares or a cash ISA. So long as you don't exceed the 20,000 pounds, you're good to go. And are you a fan of LISAs, David? Is it something that you recommend to your, your people or your clients, or are you really wedded to pensions? I think it depends on the client. So unlike Claire, I'm the wrong side of the 40s. So I couldn't even get an ISA, a lifetime ISA if I wanted to. They have their place, but they're just very slightly different animals. I think for those people which are looking to get onto the property ladder and are saving for a property, then they are great because it, why would you not have that government bonus of 25%? It would be crazy not to have that. Mm -hmm. But I think when it comes to things like pensions, I think what people need to do is to understand the differences between what a pension can do versus a lifetime ISA. They've each got their own slightly different variations of restrictions. 
Once you understand that, you can make an informed decision. My worry with all of this is actually, as soon as you mention the word pensions to somebody, they tend to glaze over. As soon as you mention the word lifetime ISAs as well, people say, what's that? It's getting quite complicated. And that's what I'm not a fan of. It should be simpler for people to make that decision because if it's not simple enough, people won't make a decision at all. And then that's even worse by not doing anything. Yeah, very good point. Uh, Claire, I'm sure, well, I know you spend a lot of time explaining all the, the, the different aspects of these. Can you, in a simple way, tell us what's the difference between a LISA and the, a pension? You, you both talked about the restrictions. Obviously, there are big pros. I mean, I think 25% free money is <laughs> a big pro of, of LISAs. And then, of course, pensions have their, their big pros. What would you say are the main pros and cons of LISAs and, and private pensions? Well, first of all, if you are under 40, particularly if you're in your late 30s, I would say open a lifetime ISA. You can do that with most providers for you know as little as a pound and then you've got one because the biggest advantage of these accounts for you know oldies like me is that once you've opened it you can then carry on um, paying in every year up until you're 50 and you've got 10 years when you can't pay in although you can still move the investment choices within it around if you want to so that's the first thing you know if you if you can get in there and open one um, while you can it can give you some options later when this sort of product might become more suitable but when we're looking in the main at the lifetime ISA versus a pension like there is free money as you say attached to each but the lifetime ISA it's kind of easier to understand you know the money that you put in you'll get a 25% top up you know it works like interest if you've got the cash savings account um, the same if you've got the investment account but you've then got to choose what you want to invest the um, the, the bonus in and um, I forgot to do that one year I believe as an expert you should always admit your failings um, so the, the money was just sitting there uninvested um, I thought it might automatically get swept up but it didn't so with the, with the pension the free money if you like comes from two um, different sources if you're lucky enough to have a company pension then your employer has to make a contribution matching what you put in it may be quite a good deal I mean the FT has a, has a very good deal if we put in six percent they put in 12 percent um, which is amazing now you're not going to get that um, frankly on a lifetime ISA and it's not limited at a thousand pounds a year so really you know investigate your company pension and whether you could be paying more into that because that could give you a bigger bang for your buck in the long term. It all depends on what you want the money for, of course. The second bit of free money with pensions is tax relief. So if you're a basic rate taxpayer, broadly speaking, anybody who earns less than 50,000 a year, you're only going to get a 20% uh, tax um, uplift, if you like, on your pension. But when you're a higher rate taxpayer, somebody who earns more than 50k a year, that doubles um, and you'll get 40k so if that is you a higher rate taxpayer then pensions because of the tax relief rules now are probably going to be a more advantageous vehicle for you to save for the long term mm. but the problem with the lifetime ISA of course is that it is a, a dual product you can use it like a pension or you can use it to save up to, to buy a property and that I think is where David was was talking about this confusion mm. comes in because obviously, if you've designed something to do two jobs, normally it does both badly and, and <laughs> doesn't 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 do either one particularly well. And I think in the case of, of the lifetime ISA, if you are saving up to buy a home, you need to be aware that at the moment, at least, that is capped at a property value of £450,000. So we asked the Treasury when they might next review the mm. lifetime 
the cap, seeing as property prices have gone berserk um, <laughs> under lockdown. And um, aside from a, a vague and glib promise that they would look at it in line with inflation at some future points, um, answer has has come there none. So there really is no guarantee that that amount will lift in the future. And the huge amount of criticism that they faced for developing these products, which quite frankly, people like me shouldn't have, I shouldn't be getting this free money to the taxpayer. It should be directed at people, people who, who, who really need it. But then, you know, they designed the system. So I'm, you know, I'll take advantage of it while it's there. Well, quite right. Yes. And um, is there also a restriction on whether on the type of property you can buy? Does it have to be a new build? Because they keep doing that with with some of these these special offers. It doesn't have to be a new build, um, but there are restrictions in terms of if you use the lifetime ISA to buy a property, you're not supposed to then rent that property out. Although, again, various other newspapers have said, well, you know, have they ever prosecuted anybody for, for doing this? But the rules are, you know, you're not you're not supposed to you're not supposed to do that. Um, the biggest problem, of course, is getting your money out again. So if for whatever reason you want the money back, you can take it out, but there's a, a double penalty. You lose the 25% bonus and you're also um, fined um, effectively on top of that. You gain 25%, but you lose more than 25% if you if you take the money out. Anyway, it's a it's a nasty, it's a nasty penalty. You will end up with less than what you had when you put the money in. And obviously. If you've say, been saving up for a property and then you find that you can't find one in the price zone, that money is stuck in there unless you lose all of the bonus and um, pay the associated, the associated penalty. Or you have to leave it in there until you're 60, in which case you can access it like you would do um, a normal stocks and shares ISA in retirement. And in between time, you know, you can invest the money, you can move it around, you can do all of those things. The one thing you can't do, of course, is spend it. And I think for most young people, it's those kinds of restrictions that are the most off-putting. Um, you are tempted, of course, by, you know, the prospect of getting a free £1,000 a year. But then if that is all lost um, at the end and you have to pay a penalty on top to access your savings pot, then it's not going to be a good deal for you. No, good point. So, David, you know, I'm listening to this and thinking, oh, oh, here we are, <laughs> Lysis. But I'm, I'm also thinking for freelancers who don't have the, the fabulous free money that, that, for example, they're giving at the FT. Nice one, by the way. Um, I, I'm guessing that, that you would suggest Lysis um, with, with rather more confidence to, to those, to the self-employed, would you? You could do, but again, it depends how much that self-employed person might actually want to be paying in, because the £4,000 a year, for a lot of people, can be quite restrictive. Mm -hmm. If they're earning quite good money, they might well want to put in more, for, more than the 4000 mm -hmm. It's also the time band when they've got to do it. So they've got to 18 to 39, and then they've got to stop paying in at 50. Well, funny enough, a lot of the clients that we talk to and a lot of people out there really only start thinking about the word pension when they reach 50 because their friends are starting to retire. So it's not very suitable for those sort of people. It's understanding the tax relief that you get on the pensions is understanding that they can grow. You can start them earlier. You can also take them later. You can access your pension from 55 at the moment, whereas the lifetime ISA is 60. So that's slightly different. Mm -hmm. There's also differences as well in terms of looking further down the line. So a couple of things that people don't often know about pensions, for example, if you're saving into pension, it's nothing to do with inheritance tax. It's outside of your estate. The lifetime ISA is inside your estate. Also, there could be means testing going on with the lifetime ISA, but that doesn't always be the case with pensions. Mm -hmm. 
So it's slightly different animals. So I think if you are exactly in Claire's position, which is, look, I've got this money, I can do this, I've got my workplace pension, it's, a, it's an added bonus, why wouldn't you do that? Because you would want to take up the government on having the extra 25%, provided that you're happy to run with those restrictions and do that. The good thing about the lifetime ISA, though, unlike a pension, is if you really needed, if you did really hit the skids, say we've had a lot of people during furlough and so on, you can get at it. Now, I know there's a penalty to get it back out, but with a pension, it's a no-go. You can't get the money out until you're 55. So it's a different double-edged sword. They have both got their place, but they're both, I think, very different animals. Mm. So for me, I'm more of an advocate of the pension for retirement and the lifetime ISA more if you're looking to buy a property or if you have surplus in addition to what your workplace pension does and you want to do something else. But I'd still argue, well, you could go and set up another pension somewhere else or you could just simply pay more into your workplace pension anyway. So it's looking at those different figures and knowing how you work out that difference. And this is probably with the lifetime ISA. Most of the lifetime ISAs, the ones that we've got involved with, it's very much you go off and you do them directly. Um, we don't always do them directly through a financial advisor, for example, mm -hmm. whereas pensions tend to be more of an advised route. So if people are looking to get the advice, they'll probably be looking more at the pensions and the lifetime ISAs are taken into account, certainly, but you're not necessarily getting the advisor always doing the providing of the product at the end of it, because probably for the sort of money you're looking at, it's probably more of a direct-to-consumer offering, to be blunt. So it's just that difference. So in, in that case, maybe licenses are a bit more popular with, with the youth because they think, oh, well, I can do this on my own. I don't have to, to go to a, an advisor. Is, mm. do, you, do you think that's actually, in a sense, an advantage to them? Definitely, yeah. And the sort of age demographic, that you know, the, the 18 to the 40-year-olds that they're looking at, 100%, yeah, they can actually definitely do that. But also that's the sweet spot for people that are looking to buy property as well. So for me, I'm more erring on the lifetime ice of being more for a property than a pension mm -hmm. and a pension for pension. Maybe I'm just old school, but that's the way I, I see it. But they both have their place. It's just, yeah. it's just everybody understanding those differences and then making an educated decision for themselves and knowing what they've done. The trouble is also there's so many different ISAs you can do. And we had the help to buy ISA, the lifetime ISA, stocks and shares ISA, cash ISA, PEPs, all these different things that we've had. So they're very confusing for an average Joe consumer. And this is one of my big beefs is about getting things to cross to people, which is why I'm here today with you, is to hopefully that the penny will drop with people that are listening today and think, I understand this now. And this is what it's all about. It's about educating people to make the right decisions and not do as a lot of people would do is it's too confusing. Therefore, I won't do anything. And that's arguably more dangerous. So I'd like people to go off and at least do something um, that's better than nothing. Great. And, and Claire, I mean, your, your readers, I would not describe as your average Joe, but do you do you get letters, emails from readers going, what's this slicer thing? And what's this? Do you do you find there's quite a lot of confusion about these two products? Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's general amazement if I say to people, well, do you know that you can get a 25% interest rate effectively um, on your money? There's there's a lot of ignorance about the fact that these products exist and that you can get a cash lifetime ISA or a stocks and shares lifetime ISA. But more generally, um, I get a lot of people, particularly listeners of the Money Clinic podcast, which is the main thing that I do now at the FT, um, people will approach me on Instagram. Um, if you want to follow me, I'm at Claire B and say, how do I get started with a stocks and shares ISA or a lifetime ISA? And it's more sort of like which of those two 
routes should I go down mm. um, rather than should I choose the uh, the lifetime ISA over the pension. I do think that they are great for freelancers who are basic rate taxpayers. If they're prepared to lock the money up for a long time and it will be a few years longer um, to wait to access it than it will be in a pension. But the other advantage is that you don't have to pay any tax at the other end when you take the money out. Whereas with pensions, of course, um, you you do. So I would say if you're a freelancer and a basic, basic rate taxpayer, you've already got a property and you're thinking, well, could this be a cheap way of setting up a pension that's definitely worth looking into? But the other thing is that is the digitization. Now, not every provider offers the lifetime ISA. I think that, you know, most of the mainstream um, high street banks do not, um, for example. It was just too complicated for them. And they also feared, I suspect, the mis-selling possibilities. But the um, places that do offer it, um, you know, offer quite whizzy apps like Moneybox. They were one of the first to launch um, a lifetime ISA product. And you can round up your spare change um, from your banking transactions into your lifetime ISA through the beauty of, of, of open banking. Now, for some people, if they want to do that, you know, that's a, a fun way of kind of gamifying um, the investment world. Nutmeg, you know, they offer a choice of, of funds based on your risk appetite. So you don't have to pick individual stocks and shares. It's the word sort of stocks and shares, ISA, I think, that often puts people off. If you said funds and ETFs, then they might be a bit more willing to, to give it a go. But finally, I would say with my own use of the lifetime ISA, because I already own a property, I can't use it to buy a property. I have to use it for investment. And it has really helped to change my investment mindset because I know I can't get that money out again until I'm 60. So I do have slightly different investment choices within my lifetime ISA compared to my bog standard stocks and shares ISA. I have made a few sort of, you know, slightly riskier um, choices. You know, I've got some money in commodities, which has worked out well this year. I picked a fund which has got exposure to Chinese tech. Now, obviously, everyone's worrying about um, China. But I am thinking, well, you know, you know, this is 20 year money for me. So I'm not so tempted to fiddle around or move investments um, about so much and I think that having that long-term view anything that can help you with that as, as an investor has got to be a beneficial thing. Speaking of a long-term view do you think that licers are likely to be tinkered about with again by by politicians because they do love to tinker and we've seen what they've just been doing with the the state pension you know um they seem to have left licenses alone for a bit what do you, how do you feel that that they are are they are they vulnerable to political tinkering in the next year or so i feel like the churchill dog oh yes yes yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, Jasmine, frankly, I would be flabbergasted if they still exist in the form that they do now by 2025. I think that, you know, the take up hasn't been really what they wanted it to be. I think that it was really a scheme aimed at helping the property industry. Certainly, if we get a change of government, I think they'll go instantly. There's been lots of research saying that it's only people like me, sadly, who can afford to save extra money a month into an investment account who are really benefiting from them and that all of these initiatives help to buy etc are really helping to boost demand for property yes. rather than boosting supply so if they do go i would hope and expect that you know either they allow the money within them to be 
recycled back into a stocks and shares ISA, and that would mean I could get my hands on it earlier as well, or that um, certainly there'll be enough providers who will carry on with the stub end um, of these accounts to make it worthwhile having them and using them, and it won't turn into um, a situation like we saw with the child trust funds um, a few years ago when they were replaced by the junior ISA. David, I can, can see you're, you're, you're nodding at all of this previous pain with government mandated products. <laughs> I am, yes. And I, I've been there with all the junior ISAs and the child trust funds and all these various guises. And I come back to the same thing. It just gets complicated and knowing where you're doing. And we're all trying to make the most out of our money and our clients' money and, and to do that. But it's just so tricky to know what to do. And I think it's about having that armory of knowing and understanding all the ways in which you can. I mean, lifetime ISA, get the 25%. Why would you do that? But as you say, Claire, it's almost a, it's almost aimed at the wrong demographic, perhaps. Is it really helping those that it was designed to help? And actually to have that amount of money in there is not a mean feat for a lot of people, especially over the last couple of years. And it's it's one of those things where it's, it's just, to, just to make sure they know um, and they're using everything they possibly can. And it's all these little advantages and, and having the LISA there and using that, if you've got the money to do it, it's definitely a good thing. But I come back to the thing, the pensions are also there, but they're a very good thing as well. And it's about maybe a combination of using all those different things that are available and maximising what the government can possibly do for you to make everybody better off. But it comes down to the education piece. Again, I keep talking about that, but it's knowing enough about it. And yeah, we're all, we're all saying this, aren't we? You know, that we, we need more education and we're all doing our best trying trying to do it. And, and yeah, it, it seems to me, again, anything that involves free money, I'm like, grab it so so i would say okay while it's here while the license here while the, the the goodies with the pensions are here we we should all be grabbing hold of it and and hoping that it continues is is there anything else claire that you feel that people should know about the lices or private pensions anything to to make it more palatable you know to, to get us going right i'm going to do that today i am i really am no i am <laughs> Well, I think that the rules are off-putting for, for a lot of people. And coming back to something that David said at the beginning of the podcast about if the rules are too complicated or if there's too much choice, then people make a decision to do nothing. Mm. And, and I do worry often that that is um, what, what people do. Now, the government, again, has tried to, to preempt this by coming up with auto-enrolment, which is the policy that if you start working for an employer, you're automatically opted in to their pension scheme. So money comes out of your pay packet, then the employer pays money in, plus you get the money from, from tax relief. I've compared this in an FT column before to being like a supermarket me meal deal where you buy the, the sandwich and the, and the crisps and they chuck in the drink. But what worries me now about auto-enrolment is that we'll see a growing number of young people thinking, should I opt out of this? Because the FT is reported, government is considering upping the level of um, contributions that people have to make towards paying back their student loans from an earlier point in the salary scale. Mm -hmm. We've got national insurance going up next year. That's really going to hit um, younger workers. And then we've got all kinds of problems from the rising cost of living, from energy bills to the price of petrol, um, you know, which are all coming in at a bad time. And universal credit, of course, uh, this week being that, that £20 uplift being, being taken away. So as much as the government has made it easier in the past for people to kind of 
almost sleepwalk into pension saving, I do worry that for growing numbers of young people, opting out is going to see like the only way that they can get more money actually into their bank accounts, which would be a terrible tragedy. I agree. Yes, I, I think the uh, the auto automatic auto enrolment has been a wonderful thing, um, and it, it it is a it would be a crying shame if if people do opt out of that free money. David, is is there any suggestion you could make to the government? You know, I, I totally agree. We we need to make these things simpler. Is, have have you had any ideas of? Oh, we should have something like X that, that would actually be really simple and easy to understand. To me, the biggest thing that we hear feedback about is that the, the pension statements that people get, be it through your auto enrolment, through your personal pensions, through your final salary, doesn't matter what it is, are too flipping complicated. Mm. You look at them, it's disengaging. So they know it's their money, but they don't know how it relates to them. They don't know what effect it's going to have. Have they done enough? Have they not done enough? And the way that the figures are calculated on those statutory money purchase illustrations that everybody gets from a personal pension every year are supposed to educate and help people. They don't. They just confuse even more. And they think, well, I haven't got enough money here. It looks like I've got too small a pension. Why should I bother is another thing. And so what they tend to do is they disengage. What the government could do a lot better at is engaging people in just personal finance. And I think it starts at educating people at school. Is going back to the schools and actually having it as part of the curriculum, teaching personal finance. Because the trouble is, otherwise, you find out when you have to or when it's too late. Mm -hmm. And by which time, neither of those is a good combination for me. I think if they just taught the basics of what is a mortgage, what is a loan, what is interest, what is an ISA, how do you buy a property, what is it like saving up for your future, and what is investment and risk and funds, the basics. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a whole year, but I think that people could be doing a lot more to start right at ground zero so that when they do that, but that doesn't help when they send out statements from these pension providers that people think, what do I do with that? The language piece needs to change. I think it's, an, it's a French word. So is the word mortgage and so is the word pension. Mm -hmm. It should be made into plain English and easier for people to understand to get to grips with them, educate and inform them and engage them. And that's what we need to be doing a lot more of. And if well, they get that, that, then it's much better for them to make decisions. Well, on, on that point, um, I hate to talk up my own book, of course, but um, the <laughs> FT has just launched um, Flick, FT Flick, the Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, which is really exciting. It's an actual charity um, that the newspaper have set up. I'm a trustee. Um, we're an arm's length organisation, but we will be lobbying um, to get personal finance very much included on the curriculum um, in GCSE maths, but also to get workplaces to think more about what they can do for their staff. Now, some are really good um, at doing things. Obviously, the FT, you've got me telling everybody why they should be um, paying the absolute max into their pension. I'm sure the finance director is not very happy about <laughs> what to up their, <laughs> their contributions um, over the years. But, you know, they, we carry on learning. You know, it's not just um, at school, at sixth form, at university, goodness knows. People need help working out student loans. I've been doing a lot of work on on that this week. Um, but the learn the learning carries on, and you know you don't want to, like David said, have this situation still where people are getting to the age of fifty, and then waking up to the fact that they 
need to do something about it and also it doesn't matter what age you are if you're you know in your 50s listening to this or if you're in your 20s it's never too late um to to do something and hopefully the different options that we've um, discussed we encourage you to go out and be confident enough to find out more because that's the big thing for me people are scared you know and this is the biggest thing with all this is the whole guilt piece as well is that I should know about this I feel I, I don't want to know and, and we're quite reticent to sometimes talk about money and mm. to admit that we don't know enough about it uh, and yet you go off and go for a meal with your friends and they might talk about what car deal they've got or what they've done on this but actually the really important things your pension your life savings your buying your house is often not that well discussed mm. and it, it should be I think it should be do a lot more Fantastic. And Claire, th this is what you're doing on a daily basis, of course, is explaining these things. Um, but but we need we need more of it, as you say. Um, so, gosh, we've gone up from licenses and pensions through to financial advice and telling the government what they need to do. Claire, could you remind me again, what is this charity and how can people find out more about it? Well, it's called FT Flick, F-L-I-C, the Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign. If you want to go and have a look at our website, it's www.ftflick.com, FT Flick on Instagram. And if you want to follow me at Claire B or listen to my podcast, which is called Money Clinic, there's more information um, about all of these topics on there, including one where we debate the merits of the help to buy ISA versus the, the lifetime ISA. You can't get the help to buy ISA anymore, mm. um, opening it as a new product. But if you have got one, obviously it can still be used. Yes, fantastic. And um, David, what, what are your um, Instagram, Twitter handles, etc.? So on Twitter, I am citrus underscore David. And uh, we're on Facebook at Citrus Financial. So people can find us pretty much everywhere, I think. If you just Google my name, I'm sure I crop up quite a lot. I'm sure you do. Well, thank you so much, Claire and David. And that's your lot from us today. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And our handle is, of course, Money Magpie. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jasmine and on Instagram at Jasmine Bertles. This episode is sponsored by leading online pension provider PensionB, which has enabled more than half a million customers to be pension confident by helping them combine their old pensions into one simple online plan. Head to pensionb.com for more information. My guests today were Claire Barrett from the Financial Times and independent financial advisor David Braithwaite from Citrus Financial Management. The producer was Jenny Bertles. Thank you.